Okay, 2 Samuel 20. <clears throat> now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded a trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them, but had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Then the king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba son of Bichri will do more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Kerathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. While they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Job was wearing his military tunic, and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Job said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? Then Job took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Job's hand, and Job plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Job and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. One of Job's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favours Joab, and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road. And the man saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realised that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Amasa had been removed from the road, everyone went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Beth, Makar, and through the entire region of the Bichrites who had gathered together and followed him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba in Abel, Beth, Makar. They built a siege ramp up to the city, and it stood against the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city, Listen! Listen! Tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. He went toward her, and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, long ago they used to say, get your answer at Abel, and that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Far be it from me, Job replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. That is not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man 
and I'll withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in his Jerusalem. Joab was over Israel's entire army. Benaiah, son of Jehoda, was over the Kerathites and the Pelathites. Adoniram was in charge of forced labour. Jehoshaphat, son of Aholiad, was recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jarite was David's priest. Thank you, Michael. Uh, this is year six to eight. We're going to head out for Bible study now. Please keep uh, that passage open in front of you. Let's pray again as we reflect on this part of God's word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. And we ask that you would give us insight now and understanding. And please shape us according to your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how, uh, how hopeful are you feeling about life, life in this world in 2023? Maybe on a you know, scale of 1 to 10, take a moment, chat to the person next to you. How hopeful are you feeling about life in this world in 2023? <laughs> if you're looking for some inspiration, there's an uh, inspiring picture on the screen, maybe a... Uh... All right, what have we got? Anyone want to give me some numbers, some, show me some fingers? Are we uh, 1 to 10? Are we, are we, we got some, a 0, uh, 2, 3, 3. Can, can we do any better than 3? Oh, we've got some 9s, yes. Yeah, cool. Theologically, you might be a 9, okay. Look, I think if we're honest, I, I reckon there is a lot that is, that is unstable in this world. I mean, just take, for example, the, the reports coming from Israel, from Gaza, are, are horrific. Uh, and violence, war, it's, it's all too common throughout the world. Uh, even closer to home, it, we, we may feel sheltered in our, our relatively stable democracy, but there's a lot that is actually that is unstable and uncertain around us. Uh, we might put our hope in, in various organisations and institutions, communities, even nations, and we might look to those things for security, for stability and safety. And, and at times, they may be good cause to do that. There, is, there, is, there are good things that can be achieved in this world, that are achieved in this world. And yet, all too often, these human organisations prove to be unstable and uncertain. So how should we live? How should we live amongst the instability in which, amongst, in, in which we find ourselves? Should we, should we despair? Should we give up? Uh, should, we, should we rally and double down and, and strive to, to, you know, to make things better? Should we cling to, to whatever hope can be found? Well, this chapter in uh, 2 Samuel 20, I believe, has some answers for us. As we, we reach the end of the story of David's kingdom in 1 and 2 Samuel, um, the, the next few three chapters will 
uh, outline and an important epilogue for us. But this is the end of the, of the rise of the fall and of the restoration of David's kingdom. And we have here a snapshot of David's restored kingdom, which has some lessons for us about living in this unstable world. We saw last week in chapter 19 that uh, David had been made king again after Absalom, his rebellious son, had been defeated. But it was hardly a glorious, united occasion. There were disputes amongst the different factions within the nation. So the, the, uh, the, the, tri- the ten tribes of Israel to the north were squabbling with the, the, the tribe of Judah to the south. And, and Judah asserted itself against the, the north. And it, it's an unstable situation at the end of chapter 19. And so it's, it's really not surprising that when chapter 20 opens, it begins with the instability of another rebellion. Verse 1, we read, Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bikri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. Notice that the scene hasn't changed. It's continuing on from chapter 19. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. This is rebellion again. This is a rejection of David as king. It's as if Sheba is saying, Look, life and inheritance, a share, it's not found in following David as king, this, this son of Jesse. So it's a put down that uh, David's predecessor Saul used of him. And Sheba, like Absalom, calls Israel to abandon David. And so verse 2, we read, So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. It seems David is is back where he started. He's king, but king over Judah, whereas the northern tribes of Israel don't recognize him. Once again, his kingdom, though restored, is characterized by the instability of rebellion. And it's characterized, secondly, by sadness. The sadness of his kingdom is confirmed as we read Verse 3, when David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them but had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. This is so tragically sad. These were the women whom Absalom had violated in an act of profound defiance of David to make himself, in the words of Ahithophel's advisor, obnoxious to his father. David returns to Jerusalem and, and the first thing we're told he does is address the awful plight of these ten women. On the one hand, it seems like he deals somewhat compassionately with them. He, he put them in a house, he provided for them. The house was, was under guard, but that may have been more to protect them than to imprison them. He, that is, he didn't cast them out. He maintained responsibility for their welfare. But he also distanced himself from them. Perhaps he was distancing himself from his earlier practice of having concubines. In which case, it, it, it illustrates the, the ongoing horror of sin, even in the, in the undoing of it. And that picture there at the end of verse 3 is so tragically sad. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. These women represent something, well, something important about David's kingdom, that his kingdom had suffered the consequences of sinful men. I mean, David was responsible 
for their sadness. So was Absalom. Despite his attempts to care for them, it turns out David was, well, he was not the kind of king who would wipe away every tear. Again, we see the, the inadequacy, the instability, the sadness of David's kingdom. Well, then after dealing with the concubines, David sets about dealing with the threat of this rebel, Sheba. And we're at point three on your outlines, the futile search for stability. First step for David is to gather a military force. So verse four, it says, Then the king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. Now remember, Amasa was David's nephew, uh, and he was the one whom Absalom had made commander of, of his army against David. Then when Absalom was killed, David sent messages to tell Amasa that, that David would make him commander of, of his army in place of Joab. That was an act of ex- extraordinary grace. I mean, Amasa had, he had sided with Absalom against David, leading the army against him, against the Lord's anointed. But the king showed him grace and calls him into his service. We ought to sympathize with this ourselves as people who have, have rebelled against the Lord and yet received even more profound grace from him as he calls us into his service, into his family. Amos's first task was to summon the men of Judah. He has three days to do it. But we read verse 5, But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. He failed to return in time. Did he have difficulty persuading David's men that he was legit? I mean, until recently he'd been fighting for the other sides, but so perhaps. Or was he perhaps not so keen on this new appointment? Was he spurning the king's grace? Was he half-hearted in his efforts to serve the king? At any rate, he failed the king's command. And so David turned to another of his commanders, to Abishai. Now, Abishai was one of the three men who had led uh, David's uh, troops into battle against Absalom. Uh, there's Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, the Gittite. Um, and it's noticeable here that David turned to Abishai, not Joab. I mean, no doubt by this stage, David would have known of, of Joab's hand in Absalom's death. Uh, David had already made it made it clear that he wanted Amasa instead of Joab. And so verse 6, David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. David wants to pursue and remove this rebel, Sheba, before he can gain strength and escape. And so notice verse 7, So Joab's men and the Kerithites and Pelethites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. Uh, David had, had avoided Joab. He appointed Amasa, then he turned to Abishai. But who is it? It's Joab's men who go out under the control of Abishai. They then meet uh, Amasa, verse 8, while they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Was this planned? Was this just coincidental meeting? We, we don't know. But enter stage right, none other than Joab. Verse 8 continues, 
Joab was wearing his military tunic and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Oh, of course it did. Just accidentally found itself out of its sheath and in Joab's hand as he greets Amasa, verse 9, Joab said to Amasa, how are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand, and Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. Joab had he'd been ousted as the commander of David's army, but he's not going to stand, for, stand by and let that happen. He's a, man of, he's a man of action. He's a man of bloody action. He kills Amasa brutally. He seizes control of, of the army. He calls on the troops to look to him as their leader. Verse 11, we read, One of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever follows Joab, whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. If you're for David, follow Joab, says the man. Seems the troops are not too sure about this course of action. As we read on, verse 12, Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road and the man saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realised that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Amasa had been removed from the road, everyone went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. It's a horrific scene. Amasa's wallowing in his in his blood, it caused pause for the troops. Do they really want to follow Joab, a man who has done this, to the commander appointed by the king? This man deals with the evidence, drags him, the master from the road, throws a garment over him, not even so much as a shallow grave. David's restored kingdom is a place of violence and betrayal. The campaign to deal with the rebel continues. Uh, Sheba escaped to Abel, to a town in the north of Israel. There's a map there, I don't know if you can see, but Abel's right at the top and they've uh, come from right down the bottom. Joab has pursued him all the way. He's determined to deal with this threat. Uh, Sheba indeed escaped into a fortified city, the thing that David wanted to avoid. But not to worry, Joab and his his men besieged the city. They built a siege ramp and started battering the wall to bring it down. Job is going about things his usual way, using brutality and violence. But then a wise woman intervenes, verse 16. A wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. He went toward her and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. The narrative slows right down. and We're poised, ready to listen to this wise woman, as, as is Joab, this bloodthirsty man of action. He says, I'm listening. Verse 18, she continued, long ago they used to say, get your answer at Abel, and that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You're trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? She says, we're a place of wisdom. We're a place of peace, of 
faithfulness of the Lord's inheritance. Why would you want to destroy that, she says. Joe's response, I think, is laughably ironic, isn't it? Verse 20, far be it from me, Joe replied, far be it from me to, to swallow up or destroy. I mean, the irony, we've just read what Joab did to Amasa, lying on the road, wallowing in his blood with his intestines spilled. No, 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 I, 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 don't, I don't destroy. 21, he protests, that is not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man and I'll withdraw from the city. Again, notice the irony. I mean, Joab has just lifted up his hand, literally, against the king's commander, Amasa. Joab claims to be defending the king, but really he's just taking control, serving himself and doing things the way that he thinks is best. The woman said to, to Joab simply, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. And the woman went to all the people with her wise advice and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bikri, and threw it to Joab. This wise woman comes up with a far less destructive solution than battering down the wall and destroying the city. They deal swiftly with just the rebel. I think that highlights the, the contrast between Joab's violence, which is a far cry from the wisdom and peace and faithfulness of the Lord's inheritance. For this futile search for stability, with, with Joab calling, uh, uh, calling the shots, it, it finishes with, with him uh, ending the siege. Verse 22, so he sounded the trumpet and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home, and Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. I imagine, I sort of picture him with Sheba's head under his arm. Imagine that meeting. David had sent out Amasa, then sent out Abishai, but who should return as the self-appointed leader of the army? Joab the man who killed David's son and is now brutally disposed of two army commanders. The restored kingdom of David was an unstable place. It was not what it once was. And I think that's, that's actually the point made by this last list of David's officials in verse 23 and following. And you might wonder, why, why does the writer of 2 Samuel think it's important to include this list of these to us, random people doing different things. The interesting thing is that there's a similar list back in chapter 8 in 2 Samuel at, at the high point of David's kingdom. And it's interesting comparing the two lists and noticing the differences. Here they are side by side on the screen with the order adjusted slightly. Firstly, notice the similarities. Joab was over the army. Jehoshaphat was the recorder. Uh, Zadok, Abiathar and his son Ahimelech were priests. Uh, the secretary might have changed, or perhaps it was just a variation of the same name. Uh, Benaniah was over the Kerathites, the Pelathites. There, the similarities. But notice the differences. We now have forced labour. David's kingdom had taken on a new brutality. Uh, David's priest, or it could be his counsellor, is no longer his sons, but a foreigner. David's family relationships had him in, no doubt been impacted by recent events. Uh, there's a different, different emphasis with Joab's role. Notice he's, he goes from being over the army to 
over Israel's entire army. Highlights Joab's control. This is not just over Judah, but over all of Israel as well. But what's the big thing that's missing from this second list, or rather the big person that's missing from this second list? Anyone? David. Where's David? When I mean, the NIV has David's officials as the, the, the title that's added there, but David's not there other than the mention of his, that he had a priest. Back in chapter 8, at the high point of his reign, we, we have this glorious statement, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. But here in chapter 20, it says nothing about David and his reign. No longer was the kingdom characterised by David reigning with justice and righteousness for all his people. No, it's become a place of instability, of rebellion, of sadness, of brutality, largely under the control of self-interested Joab. David's kingdom earlier had, had, had given us a glimpse of the kingdom of God with justice and righteousness. And yet David's kingdom, like like all human organisations and institutions and communities, it, it was corrupted and unstable because of human sin. And so we're left here with a, with a picture of the instability of David's restored kingdom, which can only point us forward in hope to the coming kingdom of God, which unlike David's kingdom, the kingdom of God cannot be shaken, as Hebrews 12.28 says. The kingdom where, in the words of Revelation 11:15, the kingdom of, of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. A kingdom characterized not by instability and rebellion and sadness, but by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, as Romans 14:17 says. This picture of David's kingdom, his unstable kingdom, points us forward in hope to the kingdom of God found in Jesus. Let me draw out a few implications of this for us. Uh, firstly, I think this means we should be, we should be real about the, the instability of human organisations and institutions and communities and nations. and uh, They will be corrupted because of human sin. So don't put your hope in the, in the people and things of this world. Put your hope in God. And he's appointed Messiah, Jesus. I think that that realism even has an implication for our view of church and, and how we relate as church. I mean, churches are, are earthly expressions of, the, of Christ's glorious heavenly church. And yet they will still have the character of human organisations, which are corrupted because of human sin. Uh, our churches can and do experience the destabilizing effects of disunity, of sin, of self-interest. I mean, there's a reason that the scriptures call us as followers of Christ to, in the words of Ephesians 4, to be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Or in Colossians 3, to, to bear with each other. And forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It might be stating the obvious, but we need to bear with each other and forgive one another because there are things that happen that need to be born with. 
and forgiven. So setting our hope on the, on the kingdom of God, it will mean that we'll be, we'll be realistic in our view of human organisations, of, of communities, even in our view of, of our church. Our church, which hopefully empowered by the Spirit of God at work in us through his word, will be, uh, will be growing us to increasingly reflect the kingdom of God as we seek to follow Christ. Yet it will still at times be unstable because it's made up of sinful people like you and me. Second implication, first one, be real. Second one is be, beware of underhanded ways. Joab got the job done. He removed the rebel. But you have to say he was far cry from, from godliness and, and honour in the way that he did it. He may have feigned allegiance to the king. He's just saying, you know, if you follow David, we'll come follow me. But he really was motivated by his own self-interest. So beware of underhanded ways. Uh, the apostle Paul presents the, the contrasting way of the kingdom of God. He says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. As people of God's kingdom, we're to have nothing to do with deception or distortion of the truth. We're to be people of, of righteousness, of peace, of joy in the Holy Spirit. As we thirdly live, not with our hope in the unstable kingdoms of this world, but rather live for the kingdom of God. As we follow the perfect king, Jesus, whose kingdom cannot be shaken, who rules with perfect wisdom and peace, and whose reign is characterised by justice and righteousness for all. David and, and his unstable kingdom points us forward in hope to the coming kingdom, the kingdom of the greatest son of David, who is completely worthy of our trust, of our hope. It calls us to live not for the unstable things of this world, but to live for him and for his kingdom in all that we do. So friends, look to Jesus. Put your trust in him. May his will be done on earth as it is in heaven.